Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you again. We are in week three of our series, What Did Jesus Do? And our premise is that Jesus came to earth not just with a life-changing message, but with a life-changing method. And we want to study what did he do. And so in week one, we saw that Jesus enlisted people. He went after people. He found them and he signed them up to be his followers. He went after the few. He went after the fringe, those that other people overlooked. And he went after the faithful. Last week, we talked about how Jesus didn't just enlist, enlist people, but he equipped people. He gave them what they needed to do the work that he was calling them to do. And he gave them three very important gifts. We talked about it last week. The gift of clarity, so they would know what their lives should be about. The gifts of time, so that they could learn from him. And the gift of discomfort, everyone's least favorite gift from Jesus. The gift of discomfort, so that we would be changed into his image. And this morning, we're talking about how Jesus entrusted people. This last Thursday night, my family and I, we were in Foxborough, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, and we were a part of an amazing event, the Team Impact Gala. And Team Impact is an organization that connects children with physical challenges and medical conditions uh, with college sports teams. And they take kids that wouldn't normally ever have the opportunity to be a part of a team, and they build an amazing relationship between that child, that child's family, and the sports team, and we've been a part of that, my family. My youngest daughter, Madeline, has cerebral palsy, and we are connected now for almost three years with the Syracuse women's lacrosse team, and it's been an amazing thing. We actually were with them yesterday, and they invited us to come and share at their annual gala. I knew it was a big deal, but then when I got there, I realized, like, this is a really big deal. There's about 1,500 people there, all sorts of influential business people, donors, uh, high-powered businessmen. Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, was sitting on the front row next to the governor of Massachusetts, and they had asked me to speak and to share our story to help that, the whole fundraiser aspect of the evening. And when I got there, one of the first things they said to me was, our entire year's budget has to be raised tonight. No pressure. All day, my 10-year-old Caroline was asking me, Dad, are you nervous about tonight? Are you nervous? And I'm like, no, but every time you ask me, I start getting a little more, a little more nervous. And I felt the weight of that moment, this sense of like, I need to share this story well and do it in a way that causes people in the room to be moved to generosity. Now, I do that, obviously, regularly at church, but this is a very different sort of environment. And I, and I just felt the weight of what I had been entrusted with. And as Jesus um, is getting ready to go back to the Father at the end of his life, he entrusts his followers with some remarkable things. And what I hope this morning, what I've been praying for us this morning, especially if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, is that by the time I'm done sharing from this text, you will have a new sense of the weight of what you've been entrusted with, what Jesus has given you to do. And we're going to look in this uh, passage in John chapter 20. Now this is, Jesus has died on a cross. He died on a Friday afternoon. He was buried before sundown because it was the Sabbath. The Sabbath happened uh, all the way till sundown Saturday. And now this story that we're going to look at in John chapter 20, this is Sunday night. So we talk a lot about what happened on Sunday morning because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But just to give you context, this is that night. So let's look at this. John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Now remember, the last time they saw Jesus, he was being killed on a cross. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus has entrusted us with his work Right, That's what we've been talking about, that there's a work for us to do. But in this passage, we're going to see three things that Jesus gave us so that we could do the work. So it's really three things that he's entrusted us with so that we will do the main thing that he has entrusted us with, which is extending his work today. And the first thing that we see in this passage that Jesus gives us is that Jesus gives us his peace. His peace. You know, there's no dollar amount that you can put on peace. At that, again, at that event, at that gala on Thursday night, those, the people in that room had a lot of money, and they gave a lot of money. They raised a couple million dollars that night just from the people there. That's the sort of money that was in the room. But there's no amount of money that you can give to get peace. And Jesus walks into this. Now, I want you to imagine this scene. Um, the disciples know that Jesus was crucified. They know that he was buried. They get up Sunday morning, and they start hearing amazing things. The women come back from the tomb and say, the, the, the stone was rolled away and the tomb is empty. And the angels told us that Jesus is not here, that he's alive. And then Peter and John, they take off running to the tomb and they get there and they realize, yes, the tomb is empty. And they're, they're wondering, what is going on? And then Mary Magdalene talks to Jesus in the garden. And she comes back and says, I talked to Jesus. He's alive. And then the two, the two um, disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, by this point, they would have made it back to Jerusalem to say, we were going home and some guy joined us along the way and he began to talk to us. And we sat down to eat and he broke bread and he blessed it. Our eyes were open and we realized, this is Jesus Christ. He's alive. And so they're all, you know, just, I can't even imagine the energy and, the, and, and what they were feeling in that moment. But when you find them on Sunday night, where are they? <laughs> they're locked behind doors. They're afraid. They're thinking if the Jewish leaders could kill Jesus, then surely they'll come after us next and finish us off. And into that environment, Jesus shows up. And that's what I mean. He shows up. He doesn't knock on the door. They don't unlock the door, open the door and let him in. He just appears in their midst. Talk about a startling moment. He's just there. And he says to them, peace be with you. Now, that's actually a very normal greeting. That was actually a very normal greeting back then. You and I don't greet each other that way. That would be maybe weird. If we saw each other, it was like, peace be with you, peace be with you. There's nothing wrong with it, but we don't do that. We say, hey, how's it going? I hope you're having a good day. But back then, for the Jewish people, they would greet each other this way. They would say, peace be with you. So it's kind of funny. I thought this was funny because Jesus shows up. The last time they saw him, he was dying on a cross. He manifests, just shows up right in front of their faces. And instead of saying anything dramatic, he's just like, hey, guys, <laughs> peace be with you. And then he says it to them a second time, peace be with you. And one thing that we learn here is that if we're going to do God's work, we need to have his peace. We have to have his peace. Because fear has a paralyzing effect. I remember being out at one of the, I don't know if it's Buttermilk Falls, and one of the falls in upstate New York with some friends, it was a bachelor party, and they found this cliff that you could jump off of into water. I knew right away, not for me. No way. I'm way too educated to do that. Way, way too experienced to do that. But all my other buddies went up and did it. And I remember one of my friends, some of you guys know this guy, his name is John Rogers. He stood on the edge of this cliff, and he stood there for what felt like hours. He wanted to do it, but the fear 
paralyzed him. He couldn't move. He did jump and survive. But um, fear has that sort of effect on us. And Jesus comes to us with peace because Jesus sees his followers hiding in a room behind locked doors, and he knows this will never do. (laughs) I didn't just go to the cross so you can lock yourself behind a door and hide in fear. The work for the disciples to do was out there, beyond the locked doors. And the truth is, is that many of us at times in our lives, we wouldn't mind locking ourselves behind a door. The world can be scary. There's a lot of things to be fearful of. And in these 18 months that we've endured as, an, as a world, there's so many reasons that people would say, I'll just stay here. I'll lock myself in. I, I'm not going to, I don't know how, what people think about this. I don't know what people think about that. I don't know if I agree with you on this. I don't know if I agree with that. So I'll just lock myself in. And Jesus wants to come to us and give us peace. He wants to show up in the midst of our fears and say, peace be with you. So that we would not be paralyzed by our fears, but that we can go out behind the doors that we've locked and tell people about the goodness of Jesus. But Jesus' peace doesn't just remove something from us. It actually provides something to us. It removes our fears, but it also provides forgiveness. And the greatest thing that you and I need is the forgiveness of our sins. It's kind of a strange verse. I don't know if you thought it was strange when I read it, where Jesus says to the disciples, if you forgive people of their sins, they will be forgiven them. If you withhold it, they won't be forgiven. If you read that verse alone, it kind of seems like, wait a minute, is Jesus giving the apostles the actual authority to proclaim the forgiveness of people's sins if they repent of them? And of course, that's not what Jesus is saying here because the way the scripture teaches us otherwise. In fact, if you watch how the apostles go and do ministry, they never say, come to me and I will forgive you of your sins. They always point to Jesus and say what Jesus did, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus is what's necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So what is Jesus saying here when he talks about the forgiveness of sins? What he's saying is that true peace is peace between my heart and God. That's the peace that we desperately need, and that is the forgiveness of our sins, that we, are, we who were enemies of God can be forgiven by God and experience peace, vertical peace, between God and humankind. And that's when the angels declared the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. They said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That's what Jesus came to do, was to establish peace between God and humankind so that we could experience the forgiveness that we all desperately need. But experiencing this peace isn't just about declaring that sort of forgiveness and that sort of peace, but it's also about demonstrating the peace that we have with one another. The way that, that's why the ethic of Jesus, when he taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and to love all and to serve all and to be willing to be the last, that's also indication of peace. Because in the Hebrew, the word peace actually is shalom, which means a wholeness, a restoration, that God wants to give us a peace that doesn't just make us right with the Father, which is what our primary need is, but also makes us right with one another so that we can live in the wholeness and restoration of the kingdom of God. And so he gives us his peace. The second thing that we see in this text is that he gives us his wounds. You know, Jesus shows up and they see him, and probably their first thought is, is he a ghost? Uh, is he a figment of my imagination? And Jesus puts all that to rest when he simply just shows them his wrists and his side and shows them his wounds. And and in that moment, they realize the resurrected Jesus Christ, he's alive, but he still bears the wounds of the cross. And it's almost like Jesus is saying to his disciples, look at what happened to me, but also look at what may be happening to you someday. 
Look at what's coming your way. If I didn't get through this without the wounds, neither will you. And if we're going to do the work that God has called us to do, we have to be willing to receive the wounds of Jesus, to be a people who know what it means to suffer like their Savior did. When Jesus entrusts us with his wounds, it means two things. He did it for two reasons. Number one, he wants to remind us of what he endured in our place. We never should forget the cross. We should never lose our awe and our appreciation for the suffering of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us in our place, taking our punishment, paying the ransom for our souls. So Jesus, in showing his wounds to the disciples, he is reminding them of the price that he paid, but he's also preparing them for the price that they may pay someday. And there was probably 10 disciples at least in that room in that moment. We know that Judas wasn't there, and we know that Thomas wasn't there because Thomas had to deal, had to have an encounter with Jesus later. So the 10 apostles are gathered in that room, maybe others, and if you think about the course of their lives, none of them had an easy life from that moment forward. They did his work, but they suffered for it. Nine out of the ten of them were martyred for their faith. And the only reason John wasn't martyred for his faith is because they couldn't kill him. They tried to kill him, but the Lord protected him for some reason. They all gave their lives. They all embraced the wounds of what it means to do his work. David Crowder, the famous Christian singer, wrote a book a few years ago, and the title of the book is Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven, But No One Wants to Die. <laughs> Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. And a lot of times in Christianity, what you have is everyone wants the glory, but no one wants the wounds. Everyone wants the three years of ministry that Jesus had, the public ministry, but nobody wants the 30 years of being unknown and just a, a nobody. Everybody wants the mountaintops, but not the valleys. Everybody wants the adoring crowds, but nobody wants to go into the garden alone and sweat the, the blood that Jesus sweat as he prayed. Everybody wants the empty tomb, but nobody wants the cross. And Jesus is saying to his disciples right from the get-go here, I'm not just entrusting you with great work, I am entrusting you with great wounds. And to be a follower of Jesus is to say, Jesus, I will not just receive your rewards, I will receive your wounds. If he suffered, we will suffer. If he was hated, we will be hated. If Jesus was misunderstood, we will be misunderstood. If Jesus was overlooked, we will be overlooked. If Jesus was doubted by his own family, there will be times that we will be doubted by our own families. And sometimes we tell ourselves this story about the Christian life that we're somehow gonna escape the wounds that Jesus had to endure, but that's not the way that the Spirit of God wants to form us into his people. It's through our suffering and it's through the wounds of Jesus that he actually makes us into the people that we're supposed to be. The Spirit wants to use our suffering to form us into the very image of the Son. Jesus didn't suffer so that you and I would never suffer. Don't ever believe that. There's teaching out there that says that you should never suffer, you should never be sick, healthy and wealthy and all this. Jesus didn't suffer so that you and I would never suffer. Jesus suffered so that our suffering would not be without meaning and would not be without end. Jesus suffered that our suffering would not be without meaning, that there's a redemptive purpose and plan behind even our own suffering and our wounds, but also that our suffering will not be without end, that we have the hope of heaven, that someday there will be no more sin, no more shame, no more sickness, no more suffering, and we'll be with our Savior. We have that great hope. But in the meantime, the question before disciples is, are you willing to bear the wounds of Jesus, to bear his wounds, to have your heart broken for people? to love people who eventually will not love you back, to pour your life into people like Jesus did who abandoned you in your great hour of need like his disciples did. These are the wounds of Jesus, and these are the things that he offers to us. Are we willing to receive his wounds? And the last thing, his peace, his wounds, but also he gives his spirit. And if the wounds of Jesus 
point out the natural aspect of being a disciple, then the spirit of Jesus points out the supernatural aspect of being a follower of Jesus. It's super interesting because Jesus shows up and he's talking to them and then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this sort of brings us back to Genesis when God breathes into Adam and gives him life. And here Jesus is breathing in disciples. Here's Jesus who hours earlier didn't even have enough breath in his body for himself. He's now giving his breath away to his disciples and he's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is communicating to his apostles, his disciples, and to you and I today is that we don't have it in us. We can't work it up. We can't give it to ourselves. But if we will receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, we can do everything that he's called us to do in his power and in his strength. And there's a lot of disagreement and debate about what exactly happened in this moment. But for me, I believe that when Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that for them, it was their moment of conversion in which the Spirit of God came to dwell within them. Before the cross, the Holy Spirit, if you study the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not dwell within people. The Holy Spirit would come and rest upon people for specific tasks. The Spirit would anoint people for specific offices and responsibilities. But the Spirit actually dwelled within structures like the temple, right? On this side of the cross, everything has changed. The Spirit of God now no longer is held up in dwelling just within structures and churches and buildings. The Spirit of God dwells within you. And that's why Paul says, you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And here, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this is different than what happens in Acts 2. In Acts chapter 2, there's an outpouring of the Spirit where they receive the Spirit. Many people pray out in other languages that they didn't know. And other pilgrims, foreigners from all over who had come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, they begin to hear the glories of God in their own languages. And it's, that's amazing. And, and we talk about that and we believe in that and we need that. But this is something different. This is before that. This is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in him, then the very Spirit of God dwells within you. Now, this is the spirit that Jesus said in John 14 and 16 he would send. In fact, I think one of the most remarkable things that Jesus says in all of the Gospels is when he says, it is, says to his disciples, it is to your advantage if I leave. It's better for you if I go. Now, how many of you ever thought this would be a lot easier serving Jesus if he was still here? If I could see him open the eyes of the blind, if I could, if I could eat some of that bread, if I could have some of that fish, if I could just watch him, I would never turn my back on him. I would serve him. They had it best. And Jesus is saying, you're wrong. You have it better than they had it. It's to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't go, I won't send the Spirit. What Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit within us is better than Jesus even beside us. And we have now the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and Jesus left to send the Spirit. Now, sometimes in, in, in charismatic Pentecostal circles, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we only think of a few specific things, like altar time and people praying in unknown languages and, and interesting things happening and exciting, loud moments and services. But how many of you know that the Holy Spirit does so much more than that? So much more than that. And we need the Holy Spirit for every step of our faith journey. Here's some things that the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit seeks us out in our lostness. When we are far from God and we don't have a single thought to him, it's the Holy Spirit that comes after us. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to our hearts, shows us who Jesus actually is, the beauty of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit regenerates us at the moment of conversion, causing our hearts to come alive and giving us that heart of flesh that we read about earlier from Ezekiel. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us and lives within us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the Bible, the writing of Scripture that we teach from on Sundays, and that same Spirit who inspired the writing of the Scripture illuminates the Scripture when you and I read it today. The Holy Spirit prays through us, sometimes through our words, sometimes through his words, heavenly languages, and sometimes when we have no words. He prays through us even in our groanings and our wordlessness. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, have been at a moment of life where you don't have the words to pray? It's just tears and groans and sobs, but the Spirit is so faithful. That's the Holy Spirit with you in that moment, and he's praying through you. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to us and through us to edify, to encourage the body. The Spirit empowers us for mission and equips us for every good work. And one of my favorite things about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, according to the Scriptures, seals us for the day of redemption. I love that. The Holy Spirit, if you belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit seals you for the day of redemption. When you think of that word seal, you can think of it two ways. One, the seal of a king who stamps something and says, it's my word and this thing belongs to me. God's stamp, his seal of the Holy Spirit is upon you. You belong to God until the day of redemption. But in other ways, like the the seal that you break when you open a jar of pickles. And that seal, what is it supposed to do? It keeps things from going bad. The Holy Spirit keeps you from going bad. (laughs) The Holy Spirit keeps you and will keep you until the day of redemption. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. And this is the Holy Spirit that when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, he was giving this to them. And he was saying, you cannot do this on your own strength. We need to be a people of the Spirit. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, we need to get into the habit of every morning saying, Holy Spirit, I need your help today. I'm going to make a mess of this day. I'm going to make a mess of this day if you don't help me out. You're walking into a hard conversation at work, a stressful meeting. Holy Spirit, help me. A difficult conversation with a family member. Holy Spirit, help me. You're stuck in traffic. Holy Spirit, help me. Whatever it is, but the Spirit of God will help us to bear his fruit, love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, and also to exercise his gifts, to encourage one another, and to walk in his power. And this is what Jesus gave us, his Spirit. So think about what he's given us in summary. He gives us his peace something we can't give to ourselves and the world can't give to us. He gives us his wounds, something we'd rather not have, but we need them. And then he gives us his spirit. And why? All for one reason, so that we can do his work, his work. Jesus came for a specific purpose, and he's called us to the same. And did you notice in the passage, Jesus says to his disciples, after the second time he said, peace be with you, he said, as the Father sent me, even so, I I'm sending you. And that's a word for all of us who follow Jesus. As the Father sent Jesus to earth, so Jesus has sent us out. And because Jesus used the word as and not the word since, this is not cause and effect. Jesus is not saying, since I was sent, I send you out. Jesus wasn't saying to the disciples, listen, I, I did a lot, okay? Look at my hands. Like, I did a lot. I did my part. Now you guys have to go do your part. It wasn't cause and effect. It was, Jesus was speaking to a similarity in the way in which we have been sent. If I were to say to you, since I grilled a steak, you grill a steak. All I'm saying is I did it, now you have to do it. But if I say to you, as I grilled the steak, you grill a steak. What I'm saying, do it exactly like me. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, the exact same way the Father sent me, I am sending you. So we have to answer the question as we close, and the band comes up, how did God send Jesus? Well, God sent Jesus to do his will and not his own. God has sent us the same way. Jesus sent us saying, don't do your will, but do mine. 
God sent Jesus to those who were far from him. God sent Jesus to love all and serve all. God sent Jesus to bring light into darkness. God sent Jesus to lay his life down for other people. God sent Jesus to enlist people, to equip people, and to entrust people. And he's asking us to do the same. There's a well-known song by Hillsong called So Will I. And there's four lines in it I love. Towards the end of the song, it, it, it says this. If you, speaking of Jesus, if you gladly chose surrender, so will I. I can see your heart eight billion different ways. He's speaking of the number of the world's population. I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child, you died to save. And if you gave your life to love them, so will I. That's the prayer of every Christian. That should be the prayer of every Christian. Jesus, if you gave your life to love these people, I'm gonna do the same. I'm gonna give my life. And here's, I wanna circle back to where we started. Can you feel the weight of what Jesus is asking of us? What he's entrusted us with? He shows us his wounds. He gives us his peace. He fills us with his spirit. And he says, I gave my life away for your neighbors. I gave my life away for your family member. I gave my life away for your coworkers. And yet we're so stingy with our lives. I'll speak for myself. I'm so stingy with my life. In the American church, the height of responsibility for most Christians is go to church once a week, serve once a month, pray once a day, give, right? That's become the bar. To be a follower of Jesus is not less than those things, but it's so much more. Let's not show up once a week and and, and pray once a day and serve once a month. Thank you for doing that. But Jesus is saying, I gave every moment of my, I gave every ounce of my blood. I gave everything for these people. Here we are trying to carve out an hour a week for Jesus and it's such a struggle for us to carve out an hour a week for him. And the weight of the responsibility that Jesus is thrusting upon his followers is you gotta give your life away. You gotta carve up your schedule, carve up your time, carve up your life. You're like, oh yeah, but I got all these other things I'm living for. Those things are often the problem. They're the problem. We have our own mission, we don't have his mission. And to be a follower of Jesus, a fully devoted, committed follower of Jesus is so much more than in what it's been for so many of us. I'm speaking about myself as well. So much more for what it's been for so many of us for so long. It's this willingness to say, Jesus, bring people into my life. I want to enlist people. I want to find people. I want to feed people. I want to fight for people. I want to give my life away. I want to give the life that you've given me. I want to give it away to others. I want them to know of your goodness and of your grace, the weight of what we've been entrusted with, to receive his peace, to receive his wounds, to receive his spirit, and to give our lives away because disciples joyfully receive the responsibility of entrusting our lives to others and giving our lives away. Let's pray together.